Well, good morning. Several of you suggested that I teach from that side of the room that uh, it's kind of hard to adjust with a switch, but I can tell you are fitting in well. Uh, this morning we finished our study on Paul's missionary journeys, and as we've done in the past, we're going to look at the structure of Acts chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. The first six verses are very are a concise summary of Paul's travels, and we're going to see a second summary of his travels. Paul is basically in the process of moving back to Jerusalem and drawing his third missionary journey to a conclusion. In the middle, we're going to actually attend a church service in Troas. It's one of the few uh, episodes in the New Testament where we actually get to visit and experience what the early church did during their times of worship. There is one key term that occurs three times in that passage, and it's the word translated exhorted, comforted, or encouragement. And therefore, we see that Paul's ministry has shifted from one of evangelism to one of exhortation or encouragement, of strengthening the believers. So as I worked through this passage and prayerfully considered how I could challenge us to growth, we're going to be focusing on encouragement and exhortation as one of the features of this particular passage. So let's begin with a summary of Paul's travels. This is supplemented in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and chapter 7. So some of the details I'll be sharing with you are found in complementary scriptures. But in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, we read, And the uproar had ceased. Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Piraeus, and Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, uh, and Tropimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. So as you can see, this is a transitional text from our study last week to the focus on the local church. It begins in Ephesus. Pastor Michael shared with us last time about the riot that occurred in Ephesus over Artemis. After that riot, Paul summoned the church, gave them exhortation, one of our key terms, and then he went on to Troas. From Troas, he went to Philippi, and while there, he would write the book of 2 Corinthians. He would then leave Philippi and go to Macedonia and spend six months in that area, visiting a number of churches no doubt the church at Berea and the church at Thessalonica. Then he went to Greece for three months, and his focus of his attention was on the church at Corinth. While he was at Corinth, he wrote the book of Romans, and he 
was going to sail from Corinth back to Israel so that he could celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. But an element of intrigue arises as he discovers a plot to assassinate him and throw his body overboard. So he instead decides to go back to the church at Philippi. The eight persons mentioned there are travel companions who are representatives of churches founded in all three prior missionary journeys. And again, elsewhere in scripture, we're told that they were accompanying him because they were taking a monetary gift, a collection for the needy believers in Jerusalem. So Paul, at this point, had a group of eight individuals who were traveling with him. And in this text, we see that their rendezvous point was Troas. So a very quick summary of 11 months of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And what we have in Acts 21 through 6 is even an abbreviated account of that. But notice where I'd like to camp out for a few minutes is on the word exhorted. We saw it in verse 1 when he had exhorted them and taken his leave. And then in verse 2, he gave them much exhortation. It's going to occur in verse 12 as well. There it's translated as comforted. One of the things I love doing is word studies, and this is one of those words that's translated one of three ways in our English versions. Most often it's translated encouragement, as you can see, 50% of the time. 30% of the time it's translated exhort, and 20% of the time comfort. And often the translator will pick one of those English words based on the context in which it is found. But the idea of encouragement involves several key elements. And this is the takeaway of the practical ramification for our lives today. First of all, it describes Christians who actively strengthen each other. Encouragement is something that occurs between individuals who have believed the gospel, trusted in Christ, and experienced the forgiveness of their sins. We strengthen one another by being together. Paul does this when he is present in their midst. And I can't thank you enough for being here this morning. As you've seen, our rosters are a bit thin, and yet it's encouraging to see your commitment to being here and to strengthening one another. It's a group activity that is vitally important to spiritual growth. Notice that what Paul is doing here is taking those who have trusted in the gospel and strengthening them in the faith. Secondly, the means by which people are strengthened, by which believers are strengthened, is the scriptures. It's at the core of the strengthening process. A little earlier in the, the book of Acts, we read that Paul and Barnabas returned, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Notice that in context, it's disciples, it's believers who are the object of strengthening. And the reason I show you this verse is because it defines a little more specifically what strengthening entails. It involves urging, strengthening, enabling them to continue in the faith. Now, if time permitted, we'd do a word study on the faith as well. Remember, these are people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
To be saved, one must trust the content of the gospel. But to build them up requires more truth than just the gospel. Everywhere the phrase, the faith, occurs as a content of doctrine, it describes the gospel, but it moves beyond that to spiritual growth, what you and I need to know in order to grow and mature as Christians. It involves truth about the local church, how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and even includes doctrine about future events, what God's plan and purpose is with regard to the future. So that notice that encouragement, strengthening, means engaging the person where they are and moving them to maturity in Christ. And therefore, the faith is broader and encompasses more biblical truth than that to which the individual would have responded when they came to saving faith. And that's why Paul considers this ministry so vitally important as he follows up on those individuals whom he had the privilege of leading to faith in Jesus Christ. So that notice, first of all, we can encourage one another by clarifying the truth of Scripture. Perhaps a new believer doesn't really understand what the Bible teaches. And therefore, whether it's a child or a new believer, the first act of strengthening is making sure they grasp what the Bible teaches. I remember as a prof having a student come into class the first day of class and say, I'm excited about studying Jesus Christ who is half God and half man. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got my work cut out for me. But on the flip side, I didn't make him feel stupid. I didn't put him down. I didn't pronounce that he was a heretic, even though he was. <laughs> I mean, that's a ministry of clarification. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And let me show you how we know that on the basis of Scripture. It also strengthens by correcting. Sometimes believers are deficient in their understanding of the text. We ran into that with Apollos. Uh, didn't correctly understand the scriptures. And therefore, strengthening means that when error arises, we take the time to, to correct their deficient understanding of the text of scripture. It then moves to creating assurance. Whether you're discipling a new believer or dealing with mature believers, they need to come to the place where they have a confidence that moves beyond being receivers of teaching to actually feeling comfortable sharing their faith with others, whether that's in an evangelistic context or teaching others, maybe their own families, maybe a Sunday school class, but they have a assurance, an inner confidence that what they are teaching is accurate and have moved beyond that confidence to conviction. Sadly, I think we probably all know believers who are assured of their faith but really haven't adjusted their perspective so that their lives reflect their beliefs. It's a sad day when we see men of faith who can tell you every jot and tittle of sound doctrine, 
but have not really embraced what the Bible teaches. You really can't see a difference in their life from the way the world lives. And their actions don't reflect their convictions. So that strengthening moves beyond a grasp that is accurate, clear, and assured to strengthening the believer to live consistently on the basis of that. And that's where as men we can sharpen one another. When we hear perspectives in a person's life that are out of keeping with the word of God in brotherly love, we need to encourage them to begin living on the basis of the, what the Bible teaches in a consistent way. Notice sometimes it involves recalling. Some pastors apologize for repeating a passage of scripture or teaching a doctrine that may be familiar with his audience, when in point of fact, he should do nothing of the kind. We need to be reminded. Uh, it's scary to recall how much I've forgotten over the years. I mean, I remember a Hebrew prof who actually had us memorize the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. And being the student that I was, I could do it flawlessly. Don't ask me to do it now. Uh, it's gone. I mean, I'm sure it's back in some file in the recesses of my brain, but the ability to access that file is totally disappeared. And we need brothers and sisters who help us recall the truths of Scripture. My wife, Rebecca, was going through a really hard time a while back. And so I took a three-by-five card and wrote out Psalm 23 and left it for her on her desk. Now, everybody in this room knows Psalm 23. But when you're going through a tough time, somehow those words take on new meaning. They strengthen they encourage in the midst of hardship. You see new insights. Psalm 27, 1. Wonderful chapter. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I can, got it memorized, but tell you what. When I go through a fearful time, I go back to Psalm 27 and read it again. Strengthening, bolstering by the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the word of God. Now, this is really at the heart of Paul's ministry. He's trying to engage everybody in his audience from Gentiles who knew nothing of the Bible to mature Jews who know the Old Testament but maybe have not fully processed their Jewish faith in light of the gospel to those who have been growing ever since he left. And that's the exciting thing about encouragement. It strengthens with a view to... Um, uh, promoting their growth in Christ-likeness of character and conduct. Any comments, observations? All right. Notice that it also comforts when suffering. When people go through times of suffering, that is the context in which the world, the flesh, and Satan love to sow seeds of doubt. Maybe the faith is not correct. Maybe I'm placing my confidence in the wrong object. If you know a brother in Christ who is going through a difficult time, in love we need to surround him and encourage him in the sense of strengthening in the midst of adversity. Quite frankly, that's why they're bringing a collection. 
God promises to meet our needs. In 1 Corinthians 15, the believers in Jerusalem are called poor, a Greek term that denotes they didn't have enough money to even meet their basic needs. So they couldn't pay their rent. They couldn't put food on the table. They were on the border of destitute. And if, if there's anything that can shake our faith, it's God's promises to provide and yet coming up short at the end of the month enabled, and being able to provide for our families. How do you strengthen? Well, in this case, they took up a collection, delivered it personally, and said, our God is reliable. In this case, God is working through his people to strengthen their confidence in the Lord and in his word. Any comments on that? All right, then the, the final element is it challenges believer to advance spiritually. That's the fun thing about encouragement. Whether a new believer or someone who's been walking with the Lord for a significant length of time, we can always challenge each other to grow more in Jesus Christ. And you know, it's amazing to me how simple uh, encouragement can be. I was doing an interim pastor, and over a four-year or two-year period of time, I would show up for services, and there was a guy by the name of Mike who was one of the most faithful servants of the Lord I've ever seen. Always there, unlocked the building, made sure the air conditioning was on, the lights, sound system. You could set your clock to Mike's work. And finally, about a year and a half into it, uh, Mike and I were the only ones there. I walked up to him, looked at him square in the eye, and said, Mike... I appreciate your faithfulness. It's rare to find a man of God who serves God's people with the humility and consistency that you do. You know what happened? He began to cry. And I said to myself, my word, what did I say? Here's a guy who I don't think cried more than two or three times in his entire life who's been reduced to tears. He was in a context where he was feeling very uh, unappreciated by God's people. How many people do you know that could profit from a word of strengthening, a word of encouragement that will push them to the next level of serving the Lord? As you look around this room, as you seek to promote iron sharpening iron, one way we can do that is by a fit word aptly spoken. Okay, any questions, observations? All right. Now, as I said, right in the heart of the travel narrative is a visit to a local church. And we aren't given many of these, so this is particularly precious. Notice in verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day and prolonged his message until midnight. Okay, so here we are in a meeting of the local church, and here's the first clear indication that the, the day of meeting had shifted from the Sabbath to the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, in commemoration of Christ's resurrection and in commemoration of the birth of the church at Pentecost. So we see that there is now a shift in the day in which God's people gathered to worship. Secondly... Notice that actively strengthening assumes these two things. Belief in Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection, 
and the power that uh, we have as a result of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Strengthening is not something we do in our own strength as good people. Something that the world can try to emulate. We live a qualitatively supernatural life that is only possible through faith in Christ and the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, they gather together. And again, this is a group activity. That encouragement requires a commitment to assembling with God's people. And I would strongly encourage you to not only take our gathering seriously, but your commitment to a local church of assembling with brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can be a part of the good work that God is doing in their lives. Notice that they also celebrated the Lord's table. The phrase translated, breaking bread, has become a technical phrase for the observance of the Lord's table. And as part of their gathering, there is a sermon, a message, to use the word of this text. The word talking is one that we've seen before that meant reasoning on the basis of Scripture. So that notice that vital to the life of the church is a message from God's word that strengthens, promotes the spiritual development of God's people, where they are encouraged to pursue Christ and become more like him. Notice the eagerness of the response, that even though Paul went on to midnight, that um, they stayed with him. Now, this should not be an excuse for a long-winded preacher, okay? Even though Tom Flynn is not here, I'm going to quit at 10 of 8, or, okay? Uh, that uh, on the flip side, you have to catch the sense of urgency. Paul is leaving the next morning, and he will never see these people again. The congregation knew that. If you had an opportunity to hear the Apostle Paul handle God's word, would you have been there till midnight? I would guess so. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and they knew that. And that's why they were particularly eager to be exposed to the apostles' teaching. Then tragedy strikes. Notice in verse um, 8 and 9. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. I could have a lot of fun with this passage. Uh, I, you know, I, I thought about dimming the lights and you know having classical music played at the beginning and doing everything I could. Uh, Roberts provided a wonderful place for us to meet, very comfortable, uh, and I appreciate the good work he does. I also appreciate the fact that there are no windows in this room, okay? So no repeating of the tragedy of this occasion. Now, notice the only textual particular that is introduced is the presence of many lamps. Now, the reference here would have been to oil lamps, a light uh, from a burning wick in olive oil, and there were many. So apparently the room was well illumined, but perhaps the air had gotten fairly stale from the burning oil and the wicks over a long period of time. 
Eutychus was not bored. Paul was not a dull speaker. As a matter of fact, uh, when you think about why he was sitting in the window, I think we see a person who was probably very tired. The first day of the week was a work day. Eutychus was a young man uh, in verse 12, also referred to as a boy. Later on, or in verse 9, he's called a young man. In verse 12, he's called a boy, which means he was between 8 and 14 years old. And my guess is after a long day of work, sleep began to overcome him. As a matter of fact, the language of the Greek here is very graphic. He struggled to stay awake. Why was he in the window? I think at some point he got up and said, let me get closer to some ventilation, some fresh air and cooler air and see if it'll keep me awake. There's no indication the room was too crowded for him to find a seat. I think he was doing everything he could because he wanted to hear what the Apostle Paul had to say. But the Greek says that despite his struggle to stay awake, finally he succumbed to sleep fell out the window three stories to his death. And the text is very clear that he died as a result of his fall. Notice that the um, Apostle Paul responds immediately in verse 10. But Paul went down and fell on him and after embracing him said, Do not be troubled for his life is in him. Paul performs a first-order miracle. After the pattern of Elisha and Elisha, he goes down, and the language here is particularly graphic. He embraces his dead body, a word that is often used for tender affection. We could think of a hug. And the contact of his body with Eutychus's body was such that Divine power flowed through Paul into Eutychus, and Paul was enabled by God to restore his life. The name Eutychus means fortunate, and Eutychus was indeed fortunate that he fell asleep on an occasion where God could use the Apostle Paul to restore his life. Now, let me pause there. Any questions, comments on Eutychus? All right. And yes, I've avoided every joke I know about falling asleep during church. So, and that was no small feat. So anyway, um, notice that after Eutychus is brought back to life, verse 11, when he had gone back up and had broken the bread, so they celebrated the Lord's table and eaten. That describes the fact that they had a late night meal. As a matter of fact, the early church was in the custom of celebrating the Lord's table in conjunction with a fellowship meal uh, after the pattern of our Lord on the night in which he was betrayed. They had gathered to celebrate the Passover, which involved a meal, and so the early church did as well. And he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. So they actually stayed up all night on this occasion. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Again, there's our key term. This time translated a little different. They talk all through the night and they are greatly comforted. So that notice all the elements of encouragement are in this passage. First of all, Christians gather together to actively strengthen. This is a ministry among followers of Jesus Christ that requires physical presence. Secondly, uh, 
Paul had carefully exposited scripture for a significant length of time. Third, they were comforted. Now, in this case, the death of Eutychus could have been a first-order tragedy. But by God's grace and power, the Apostle Paul was enabled to raise him from the dead, and one can only affect Imagine the effect that had on the group when they saw God's power at work in such a dramatic way in their midst. And then finally, I'm sure that in their conversation as well as in Paul's teaching, they were challenged to spiritual growth. So that encouragement basically involves these four elements. And that's the takeaway for us as we leave the book of Acts. How can I use my life not only to evangelize the lost, we've seen a lot of that in the book of life, in the book of Acts, but how can I use my life to further the good work that God is doing in my brothers and sisters in Christ? Any comments? Yeah. Well, you know, he doesn't elaborate, but uh, you know, we're loaded Excellent. Excellent. And some will try to say that he didn't actually die. But exactly. Uh, skeptics love to raise questions concerning the text because they don't like the miraculous. But there's two kinds of miracle in this text. One is the miracle of God working to raise the dead. The other miracle is men and women who love the Lord so much they're willing to stay up all night to talk about it. That isn't something we produce in our own strength. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the Word of God. Now, this was a very special occasion. That doesn't mean our worship services need to go from 10 in the morning till midnight or all day. But it does mean there ought to be that internal eagerness to receive and that eagerness to not only grow ourselves, but to provoke, to stimulate, to encourage, to exhort, and to comfort our brothers and sisters in Christ so they too grow in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Any other comments? There was a second hand. Yes, sir. Um, this was in the mid to late 50s, roughly. Yes. Taking place. Would the, the first gospel be written in the early 40s? Yes. Would they have by chance even had something like Mark available to? Um, when you said applying the scriptures. Yeah, there would have been very little New Testament available. Now, Paul, as we've seen, would have been in the process of producing. He would have written 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He would have written Philippians by this time. So that I'm sure part of the scriptural instruction was material that would ultimately be inscripturated. Uh, so that while he wouldn't have been able to say, open your Bibles to Philippians, he could have shared with them a great deal of that which is in the book of Philippians. Um, great question. And which, again, underscores how important this would be. I mean, if you wanted New Testament teaching, this was your one shot until the canon was closed and the New Testament was finally written. 
Okay, needless to say, I'm going to move over this next section fairly quickly. In verses 14 and 15, Paul basically sails back to Miletus. As was the custom in the New Testament area, ships would often go one day and, and go into port so they uh, could sail the, the tricky waters during the daytime. He gets as far as Miletus and decides not to visit Ephesus because he wants to get Jerusalem by the day of Passover, which is now about a month away. He meets with the Ephesian elders, and then he sails from Miletus to Jerusalem, and thus ends the third missionary journey. Now, as sort of the cleanup hitter, I ask myself, how can I bring our study in Acts to a conclusion? And I wanted something that we could all walk away with. And what we've basically seen is that the purpose of the book of Acts is to describe the orderly and sovereignly progress of Christ's great commission in the spread of the gospel from Jews to Gentiles and from Jerusalem to Rome. And it all stems back to the great commission. So why don't we read this together? This is the Lucan account. It's a little longer than the Acts account, but both were written by Luke. Let's read this out loud in unison together. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I can't imagine a better way of summarizing our journey through the book of Acts in that we have been called to announce the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, God's son, died in our place for our sins and rose again. Our authoritative basis is the word of God. We are called to be witnesses. I love that term because it basically describes a person who shares what he knows. It describes a man who has experienced the gift of eternal life and therefore does it out of a context of personal experience. By the power of the Holy Spirit so that it advances successfully. I hope that whether it's our own Jerusalem or the missionaries we support for work around the world, that we have a renewed vision and commitment to winning the lost of faith in Jesus Christ. And then the one element that was in our passage today, it's more prominent in Matthew's record of the Great Commission, is the strengthening of disciples, where believers strengthen one another um, and equip one another for good works. That's been the, the goal of our study, and hopefully we've all been challenged to be great commission stewards. Let's pray together. Our Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for these men who want to be obedient to the Great Commission, who want to share their faith as you open doors of opportunity, who want to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and who want to be encouragers first to their families, then to the men assembled here. 
open our eyes so that we can see how to sharpen one another, how to strengthen one another, so that at the end of the day, we are all more like Christ because of our fellowship together to the honor and glory of your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.